Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another 30 with Murdy. I hinted at you last week. We've got some special things coming up in season two, and that includes this week when I welcome my first Hall of Famer to the podcast. It's Cal Ripken Jr. He certainly needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. Baseball's Iron Man, the magic night in Baltimore 1995 when he played in his 2,131st consecutive game and broke Lou Gehrig's unbreakable record. Cal tacked 500 more games onto that mark before taking a breather in September 98, a Sunday night game that was against the Yankees. Rookie of the Year in 1982, World Series champion in 83, elected to the Hall of Fame easily on the first ballot in 2007. Ripken's a Baltimore lifer, born and raised. We talked a little about his growing up there and about specific moments of his two biggest baseball achievements, catching the final out of that 1983 World Series and the night of 2131. Among the other subjects I asked Cal about, well, uh, I asked what he admires in the current crop of young shortstops about his son, Ryan Ripken, who recently signed a minor league deal with the Orioles. And from the guy who played every day for 16 years, we hear his thoughts on the recent NBA controversy of resting star players. Cal's also an advisor to Commissioner Rob Manfred on youth programs, and we talk about ideas for the future of the game at the major league and youth levels. Some interesting ideas here for sure. Finally, we discuss his career in writing children's books. His latest is called The Closer, and it's now available from Disney Hyperion Books. I taped this interview with Cal last week when the Yankees were in Baltimore. Originally scheduled to be done at his office outside of Baltimore. A change in my travel plans forced us to do this over the phone, but it's a fun conversation. It was fun for me, and I felt like it was kind of fun for him too. So here you go cal ripkin jr spends 30 with murdy i'm guessing it's going to be a little harder for you since you grew up around the game but i wonder what you can tell me about the first baseball game you ever went to do you have an early memory of going to the park i wish i had sort of a billy crystal moment where uh you know he walks out and he smells the grass and uh and it's the coolest thing in the world i grew up around baseball and i grew up around the minor leagues and my experience when we went into different ballparks were similar to those sort of feelings that you kind of walked up and then all of a sudden when you looked out the ramp, uh, the field was exposed to you. And I had a chance to go out and run on them and, and, and play on it and see how nice the grass was and those sorts of things. Or how in the minor leagues, how, how not the, nice the grass was. Yeah. But it was, uh, I always just loved the, uh, and I still get a, a sense of peace when you, uh, when you uh, go out and see a ballpark or you're sitting at the ballpark. I went to opening day um, this year, hadn't been there in a while, sat in my front row seats, and it was a really comfortable scenario to be in, uh, just being there uh, with the grass and dirt, you know, just a few feet away. Uh, I talked to Mark Shapiro last year, I know you know pretty well, uh, yeah. kind of growing up, and one of the things he told me that was kind of cool is because of what his dad did, players used to come over to his house and it was just kind of normal. Do you have some memories like that where, where that was the case? 
you know, just hanging around the uh, the guys in the minor leagues and the guys that came through. I mean, early on, you can almost remember Jim Palmer played for my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Belanger was on that uh, was the team out there. I was really young. Um, but a lot of the games, the names that went on to the big leagues, um, and you looked at, you knew that you were hanging around them, that you had some sort of uh, relationship with them uh, before they got, got to the big leagues. So that was pretty cool. Um, Mark Shapiro, you mentioned him a minute ago, uh, being at the Hall of Fame, I think, for Brooksy's induction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, hanging around, uh, you know, uh, Mark at that time uh, and David at that time. I think uh, they were both at the at, the, at Brooksy's induction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a lot of hang, hanging around time and going through the museum. I never had that experience really to go through the museum um, and just kind of walking through and looking at all the things at the museum. That was a really cool experience. You would think that being around baseball that um, I would have had a chance to go through that Hall of Fame. But uh, when I think of uh, you know the Shapiros, I, I, I kind of remember that moment wow. where they were pretty wide-eyed and I was wide-eyed at the same time and I was a big leaguer. It's funny, like as baseball fans who go to the Hall of Fame, you know, we get wide-eyed at certain things. What are the things that that you remember that struck you? I just remember my dad uh, didn't throw away anything, so he had uh, his catcher's gloves and uh, different fungos and, and different bats that uh, were made uh, over the uh, years. So seeing a catcher's glove with no break, you know, I knew about those sort of <laughs> yeah. things. But look, going back and looking at the equipment and seeing the, the size of the equipment or uh, what was there as the game uh, evolved and developed, I thought that was really interesting. Even the uh, uniforms, the styles of the uniforms, um, uh, some of the – I really like the uh, different – uh, uh, ballpark dimensions uh, and how long they used to be, and sometimes hedges were uh, were as part of the fence, um, and and uh, the bullpens were inside, you know, the field. Flagpoles were inside the field. You know, all those yeah. seeing examples of those things, uh, I really like. You know, from a design element, but it really gives you a, a flavor of how they took a field and uh, made it their own. Um, and uh, it was very difficult to hit a home run yeah. to any part of the ballparks except uh, straightaway left and straightaway right. I know uh, you've obviously got a few artifacts there that people can go up and see. And uh, one of the neat things that they display up there is, you know, stuff from every World Series champion. And I know you've talked about that being you know one of your fondest memories, if not the fondest of playing, is, is winning a championship in your second year. Wasn't so fond for me. I was a 13-year-old Phillies fan watching at the time. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I joke with Ken Singleton a lot when I see him. I say, you know that ring you're wearing? You made a kid cry uh, when you won that, so I hope it's worth it. Um, <laughs> it, made, it made a lot of us happy, though. I'm sure it did. I still consider myself a kid at that time. I think I was 20, yeah. 83, late in the year, so I was just turned 23. So, uh, so only 10 years different. Um, the, the thing I, I want to know from you, Cal, um, I've had a chance to talk to different people who've had a chance to make the final out. And you got that chance, Gary Maddox, line drive uh, for the final out in game five and the celebrations on. I wonder, in your mind, can you still feel the moment? Can, can you see the ball coming to you? Can you feel it in your glove? Are there certain things that stand out about that moment that everybody dreams of that you got, but it only lasts for a couple of seconds? Do you still feel it? <laughs> Absolutely, you still feel it. Um, as you were describing it, uh, the line drive, I kept thinking in my head, it was a little humpback line drive. When it first came off the bat, I thought I was going to have to jump for it. And I remember the anticipation of you know, we're, at a la- we're at a point where there's la- the last out. And I didn't think, well, maybe a ground ball is coming to me or maybe the ball is coming to me. You just got ready in any way. But you knew you were one out away from a uh, world championship, and it, it, it was inevitable. Uh, we had a 
five nothing lead, and we felt like uh, it was going to happen. And so I just remember the excitement. Um, and I haven't I haven't been really a part of a uh, um, a no hitter mm-hmm. from one pitcher uh, per se where you're yeah. playing defense. But as the game, you know, I remember Palmer had a no hitter deep in the eighth. I think uh, Messina had a perfect game going into yeah. uh, the ninth. I think. And so there was a couple times when it was it was broken up at that point. But you started to get an anticipation of those last outs. That feeling is like ten times that much in uh, <laughs> in the World Series. You're sitting there. This is everything you work for. So when he, he uh, Scotty McGregor threw a pitch that got in on him a little bit, and the line drive uh, came out. It was a you know sort of a jam, uh, uh, a little bit of a humpback uh, jam line drive. And when it left the bat, it looked like a little, it was a little high, and I was going to have to jump. And as uh, I realized, I read the ball, and it was coming down to me. It was an easy play right at me, mm-hmm. and you just reach your glove out and catch it. And then uh, you know the feeling of satisfaction when you close your glove around the ball. Um, you knew you had the ball, and you're running in to celebrate. I remember uh, at that time there were still people that uh, charged the field. Yeah, yeah. So uh-huh. somebody was trying to grab the ball out of my glove, I think, <laughs> and then somebody tried to grab my hat, and then you're trying to hold on, secure your your stuff, um, and celebrate at the same time. And then it was a you know a quick uh, exit off the field since, since you're in the way, and the celebration yeah. happened up underneath. But yeah, catching that ball um, it wasn't a hard play, but it was uh, you know a play that you remember really clearly uh, your whole career from the significance of, uh, of what it meant when you caught it. There's, uh, you know, the other moment, obviously, and we're going to get to a few more things with you, Cal, but the other moment that obviously that everybody, I'm sure, walks up to you and talks to you about all the time is 2131, and they all have their own memories. I have some of mine watching, you know, from the studio I was working in at the time, but I'm curious if there's one significant picture in your mind from that night that that the rest of us didn't see that sticks out to you that when you think about that night, it's one of the first things that pops up in your head, and it's not something that the rest of us maybe saw that night. Yeah, and I might have said it a couple times, but I mean, um, I'm sitting in my office now, and I got a big picture of my dad over my desk. Mm-hmm. It was a pencil pencil drawing that was given to me uh, by the Orioles. I mean, it's fantastic, really real, realistic and live. Um, and uh, so that the moment that I had with my dad, there were some people that thought my dad might not come back, you know, for the mm-hmm. uh, for that night. And I'm pretty sure that I knew he was, but I didn't really talk to him about it. <laughs> yeah. And he was sitting up in the skybox, kind of to, to stay uh, stay away from the action a little bit. And uh, when I came out, I can't remember how many different times I came out to say thank you because the, the applause kept going on mm-hmm. and it was in the middle of the game. But I remember looking up to him and pointing at him. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was there was about a thousand kind of words that kind of went back and forth between us and our eyes. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, that was, that was, uh, I still get goosebumps, you know, going down my back when I start to think about that moment. Um, and, uh, so that's one I haven't talked a whole lot about. Um, of course you get a chance to celebrate with your, uh, with your little family and, uh, in the whole California angels dugout. Um, uh, everybody came down and I had a chance to, uh, meet and embrace every one of them. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, you know, uh, hugging uh, Rod Carew, and I kind of went away, and I went, that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so those, those kind of moments, they were all the way around. And, of course, the lap around the uh, field uh, when Bobby Bowe and Rafael Palmero uh, told me in the dugout that I had to go do it, and I'm going, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and then when I went back out, they came out of the dugout and physically pushed me down that direction. Um, that was the start of a pretty special uh, trip around the, uh, the stadium. Um, and, and one that no one could have choreographed or no one could have predicted um, how that would come out and how that would play out. Um, uh, I was a little embarrassed at first, mm-hmm. and uh, once I started to, to, to get into it, um, 
I guess when I look at my whole career, those two moments we talked about, the World Series moment and that mm-hmm. one, they're two different feelings on a baseball field. One is uh, much more of a human moment, and one is uh, uh, sort of a professional feeling, uh, fulfilling a dream. As a kid, wanted to be a big league player, but you also wanted to win the World Series. And uh, by grabbing that last out, that gave me, you know, the most unbelievable feeling. But uh, 21-31 was pretty cool. Uh, because you're a guy who was known for going to work every day, playing every day, I'm curious what your thoughts are on one of these latest sports controversies surrounding the NBA where they have not just regular players getting arrested, they have star players sitting out for not an injury-related reason, and it's being strategically done by coaches, and it's caused a little bit of a, an uproar, as I'm sure you found out. What's your take on legitimate stars that paying fans are coming to see in real regular season games not even suiting up for the game? Well, I mean, there's a, there's, I guess there's some data that there, uh, there's a bigger part of the season. Um, baseball players in 162-game schedule plan every single day. An everyday player wasn't necessarily 162. That was sort of defined maybe as 150, 155. Um, and so they were getting strategic days off and because of travel. I mean, it's a grueling physical schedule playing every day, and it's, uh, it's also maybe more mentally challenging. I never thought that I would get a blow or, or I'd feel so much better if I missed one game. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see the logic of uh, you going in this slump and you're 0 for 25 and you uh, you played a 15-inning game last night and you got Roger Clemens on the mound the next day. It might give you a mental lift by sitting down and watching somebody else play. Mm-hmm. I never looked at it that way. Um, but I can see the logic of, uh, you know, you're trying to win the championship and you're trying to rest your pitchers. You're trying to, you know, rest your regular players and give them a blow at times. So I can see the logic from a fan standpoint. You know, you want to go to the game and watch these players. You know, if you, you're buying a ticket and you want to go, you want to see LeBron. And then uh, to not see LeBron in a game that you went, you, you went to, um, it almost feels unfair to you. Uh, I will tell you, um, when I had back surgery, and then towards the end of my career, the Sunday day game after the night game, it was harder to recover, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, being really stiff. And uh, so I missed uh, a number of Sunday games, you know, from the day, day game after a night game. It was because uh, I knew that if I didn't, you know, um, give myself a chance to recover, that uh, it would get worse and worse and worse, and then maybe it would result in me missing a lot of games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember people telling me, yeah, I came uh, for, you know, three hours, I drove three <laughs> hours, and, and yeah. you didn't even play. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I said, well, where were you for the other 17 years? <laughs> <laughs> so it, I understand the disappointment of people that go to the ball, ballpark or go to a basketball game to wanting to watch, uh, you know, the players that they went to see. And uh, it doesn't feel right to me. I don't have an answer for it. Mm-hmm. I understand both sides. But uh, I was someone that wanted to grind through it, and I didn't see the benefit of, uh, of sitting out a game. I thought uh, some of my best games were when I felt a little, a little down and that I could contribute. And as Dad, Dad used to say, you can't worry about yesterday's game. You can't replay it, and you can't play tomorrow's game until it gets here. It gets mm-hmm. here. You might as well play today. <laughs> Good philosophy. That's, that's how I always looked at it. I, I was curious, getting back to your game, the one you're more familiar with, there are a lot of good shortstops out there. Uh, as the season has started, you know, watched what Francisco Lindor did in the opening week. Carlos Correa, I know, has been a guy that you've pointed out. Uh, what do you think of this current group, maybe compared to some of the groups that have come up together along the way? It seems they come in bunches. Are there favorites for you here as you're watching? Maybe Javi Baez you saw last year. Are there any of these guys that, that stick out to you that uh, that you're impressed watching? Yeah, 
I mean, all the fantastic shortstops. I mean, it, it seems like it's a celebration of the shortstop right now. I mean, Addison Russell was really impressive uh, watching him, and I didn't get a chance to see him much. Um, and uh, Francisco Lindor, I had a chance to cover them in two series last year and uh, and had a chance to sit and talk to him. And then Jimmy Rollins and I uh, went out and talked to him a little bit about shortstop uh, as a segment for, for – uh, um, TBS, mm-hmm. and the thing that really impressed me is you can look from a distance and watch the physical skill that Lindor has, and I, I, he might have the, the best range of anybody um, that uh, is out there right now. It seems like his first step, he's fast, he's quick, he's long uh, in some ways in, in, in his steps. He just seems like he, there's no ball that he can't get a, a, a shot at. And uh, but listening to him uh, think about the position, and then uh, look thinking about the risk of uh, you know making certain plays, or you know the flashiness. He wasn't worried about. He has a flashy style, but he's not worried about making plays that, uh, that make him look flashy. He's looking about the risk in making the plays. And I loved him even talking within the shift. He was talking about moving, you know, with situational counts within the shift. Mm. And that, that's exactly something that I would think about doing. I, I always had to position myself because I didn't have his legs and his range. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's a guy that has his legs and his range, and he's making minute adjustments in, uh, in his position within you know, what they're putting him in, in the shift. He has, he has the leeway to do that. So he has a really good understanding of the position. So I really liked getting to, to know him a little bit. Um, Seeger out in, uh, out in L.A., yeah. uh, really, I mean, he's a thick uh, big kid. So, I mean, you look at guys that are 6'4", like Correa, you know, is, is really uh, a little bit more slight um, at, at his, uh, he's strong as, as anything. But you look at Seeger, Seeger has uh, got a little bit more weight on him. He moves exceptionally well, but he makes the position at a shortstop look, look pretty easy. But he's a big guy. And so I enjoy watching all the different types of, of shortstops, but in particular the guys that, uh, that I can relate to, the guys that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, backhand the ball and uh, set their feet before they throw. Yeah, uh, because that's how they have to, you know, right. like like I had to, and uh, so seeing them have success at the position really makes me happy. The nuances of the shift that you talked about. Could you see yourself being a guy who would have been comfortable playing on the other side of the bag as many times as some of these guys are asked to do? No, I mean, um, no. To to, mm. to to answer it um, uh, quite honestly. Um, I think you had to have a really good reason, you know, and uh, that you could prove to play somebody that far in, in the shift. Mm-hmm. And I know that they have data that supports that, but but the situation and the pitcher's matchups and things change. And I think that the hard part right now is for those that really advocate, you know, the positioning. And even though you start to see the extreme shifting uh, go away a little bit, because I think maybe it's proving that it's not as effective. Mm-hmm. But if you want to try to prove that it is effective, um, that you have to compare where the shift you played and then compare it to where you would have played. And there's not just one position that you would have played um, if you didn't play the shift. Uh, you following what I'm saying? Yes, so if you can yes. compare it to a straightaway position, say, okay, we shift over here and we took these hits away from uh, Teixeira. Um, but if we wouldn't have played him that far over, um, we would have played him straight away and we wouldn't have been able to get to these balls. But my point is, if we're playing Teixeira, um, sometimes you can play him um, more to pull in, in, the, uh, in a count that's favorable to him. Sometimes you play him a little bit less. Sometimes when he's hitting really well, you know, he stays on the ball more and he's more mm-hmm. apt to hit a ball you know, to the shortstop side. I used to always think about Reggie Jackson that way. Okay. If Reggie Jackson was swinging really well, I couldn't play him as extreme to pull as I did uh, normally. But if he was 
struggling, mm. he seemed to roll over the ball and kind of get out. He was much more of a pull hitter. So knowing how he was swinging the bat gave me sort of an indication, and knowing how he matched up against each individual pitchers changed how I, I played him. So I guess I'm not an advocate of saying there's one way to play one guy. I like the freedom and the flexibility to move within within the count and, uh, and, and how he was swinging the bat. Very interesting stuff. I, I want to shift over to your your uh, fatherly side because I, I see that uh, your son Ryan signed a minor league deal with the Orioles, uh, has struggled a couple of years in the national system and is now with the Orioles. Less from the baseball side, Cal, more from the from the side of being a dad. What's it like to watch your son chase this dream and not have a lot of success? You obviously have the baseball background to deal with that side of it and maybe instruct him a little bit or get him through. But just as a father who's watching his son struggle, what's that like? Yeah, well, I mean, Ryan's career is pretty interesting. I mean, uh, he, he's got good potential, and uh, he was drafted on his potential. He's got good size. I mean, he's 6'6", uh, mm-hmm. six, six, he's 240, and he looks skinny. <laughs> you know, he's got, so he has easy power, but he hasn't, you know, really shown that. Um, and starting starting out with his uh, career, he hurt his ankle. Mm. And then he, then he uh, and uh, so he missed some time because his ankle, they rehabbed his ankle, and they came back, and they thought that was the better route to go. And then he re-injured his ankle again, which required surgery. So when I look at his early development he didn't have enough time to really get his uh, literally get his feet on the ground um, and so he missed a couple of years and then when you miss a couple of years um, people get drafted in the system uh, does, the system doesn't stop uh, first basemen keep coming in and I guess he found himself with other people passing him okay. in that system and so you get into a numbers game sometimes so um, I recognized that that was the case and he didn't have a whole lot the Nationals didn't have a whole lot to uh, to, to grab on, on to um, but mm-hmm. they, they choose to play the players that they want to play um, Ryan's really happy that he has a second chance here with the Orioles the Orioles see the potential that he has um, and he needs to get at bat so he's, he's had glimpses of uh, times when he faced a lefty slinging guy that throws 95 and he's a left hand hitter and uh, he hits a ball off the wall where he stays in there and he has a good at bat so he's capable of hitting the guys that throw really hard and he's capable of hitting the guys in between mm-hmm. it's just a matter of learning so I think for him personally he feels like uh, physically he's sound for the first time you know uh, in, you know being uh, a professional and mentally he feels really good right now and I think he just wants an opportunity um, with both those both those uh, faculties um, you know to see if I can do it or not and so um, uh, I can't teach him how to hit you know a guy that throws really hard or a guy with a breaking ball you have to go to the to plate and have it bats and in my own development I thought it took me almost a thousand at bats before I knew myself yeah, yeah. you know uh, and, and thinking about a thousand at bats it's like uh, <laughs> two and a half maybe three seasons sure um, I, I did it because I went to instruction league and I, did, I went to winter ball so I accelerated the process of those a thousand at bats but learning how to hit somebody that throws hard, learning how to hit somebody that throws a breaking ball, hit outside, inside, you need to face face those those guys. And I think that's what Ryan's looking for an opportunity now just to prove to himself whether he can do it or not. Do you do you find yourself just being the, the dad, hey, everything's going to be okay? Or is it a lot of the type of baseball things that you, you've just been talking about? Well, I mean, there's a reality of uh, what I know and what I've seen. Um, and the reality of, uh, you know, you, you can't hide from your stats. Yeah. In the end, it's not all about the stats. You know, it took me um, a year. My first season, I didn't hit a home run, and half the season into my next season, I didn't hit a home run. Yeah. And I had some pretty decent size. Um, so it's not all about the uh, stats to tell the whole story, but stats do uh, give you a measure of your success. 
Um, and so you can't hide from that. So you're going to have to go out and, and, and do it. So the reality of baseball is pretty clear, and he knows about that. But as a dad, reassuring him, you know, staying positive, you know, working doing the things you can control. Um, I just want him to um, know if he can do it or not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so if he didn't uh, get a second chance with the Orioles and that was it, you know, with the Nationals, he would wonder whether uh, he could do it or not. Yeah. And so I think he still has uh, he has the potential and he has he's just looking for the opportunity to, to see if he could do it. Uh, well, if he's uh, when he's in the New York Penn League, if he's up this way, he needs a place to stay. Give me a call because you know it's uh, we're pretty close to a couple of the stadiums up here, so I can uh, I can help <laughs> he you out. To, to play there with Auburn last year, <laughs> yeah. um, we went through the uh, that league. I think he's looking for to get himself rolling um, in a. Uh, in in uh, the extended spring training here, get himself uh, swinging the back good, and then uh, hopefully, you know, um, uh, the season the other season doesn't start until uh, middle of June. Yeah, yeah. So he's hoping to find a chance to play before that. I guess, I guess he lucked out because he got to be in the same organization and teammates with Mariano Rivera, uh, where you had to actually face Mariano Rivera. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of uh, kids of uh, former players that are around, and and I always cringe a little bit because uh, the expectations for the kids um, are um, because of what the yeah. years the father had, and they should really have a chance to be their own person. Definitely, and Def- and uh, so I think sometimes they don't get that chance, and it puts a little added pressure on them. They need to develop almost a little bit um, in, uh, in in quiet, so mm-hmm. they, they can really find out who they are, but. Um, they've been dealing with it for years, and so they had each other to lean on, which I think is uh, is really good. Um, and uh, and they have the courage to go out and try it. Your role with Rob Manfred as special advisor on youth programs. Uh, one of the things that I read that you said that I thought was very interesting when you talk about experimenting at the youth level to move the game along. Obviously, yeah. pace of play is is the subject that uh, really keeps coming up in baseball. I'm curious what you think baseball is going to look like in 10 years maybe not the things that you're kind of talking about right now or maybe the things that you are what do you think it's going to look like 10 years from now to the generation that we're trying to reach well i'm hoping the game itself doesn't change <laughs> you know even thinking about uh, deciding extra inning games uh, you know yeah. the format of what they do in the olympics or what they did in the uh, wbc mm-hmm. and that's crazy to me <laughs> I, want the, I want the rules to say the same yeah. And I want the same opportunities. But I do agree, when you're appealing to the younger kids, you want to get the, to the action ball a little quicker. You want to create, and, and really you're teaching situations. So it's not bad to create a game at the younger level where you do change the counts. Maybe you start with a 1-1 one, one count. Maybe you start with a 2-2 two, uh, two, two count. Maybe okay. it's 3-2. And because now the action pitch occurs much quicker, and maybe you put runners on base in each one of your innings. So you start off with a guy on first. You start off with a guy on first and second. So the infield and the, uh, the defense, these sort of concepts um, have been born out of uh, showcase camps where uh, you know people are looking at and, and trying to put them in situations so they can see them perform. Okay. So they're creating situations. I, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of that at the younger level to e- actually make a game out of it and say, okay, here are the rules of the game and this is the situation you put them in. And you get kids that are able to run the bases and do things that are really important. But when it comes to actually competing and playing the game at the highest or when you start to get in, 
the game is a really good game and understanding you know what happens you know in some of the, the slower moments I, I will say the pitcher controls the pace of the game yeah. any great pitcher throws strikes gets ahead the hitter has to react to that infielders are ready the game sort of moves under the control of the pitcher I think so, so that's an important element mm-hmm. um, nowadays pitchers seem to go 0-2 to 3-2 a lot yeah and uh, instead of knowing how to get them out um, you know uh, effectively and save save your pitches um, so you know when I look at that I think um, pace of plays uh, game clocks and things like that that help move the game along and kind of can and maybe even I don't like I never like stalling in the game of baseball so mm-hmm. if you don't have a pitcher ready and all of a sudden you see the manager sometimes tell the third baseman go yeah. out there and talk to him and yeah. then if he comes back and then tells the catcher you go out and talk to him you know I don't like that I think you're you're getting caught in a situation where you're I remember Joe Girardi a couple times in his career as a catcher. All of a sudden, mysteriously got something caught in his eye, <laughs> and, and, and the, uh, the trainer would have to come out and take uh, something out of his eye. And uh, in the meantime, the uh, the guy in the bullpen now is ready. Yeah. And so I, I don't like that. And so maybe maybe you control some of the visits to the mound in a way. Maybe uh, you only give so many so many uh, uh, meetings um, that occur. Uh, but beyond that, I don't. I, I see if you start to teach. The, uh, the pace of the game in the minor leagues a little bit more. If you put a clock in the minor leagues, mm-hmm. you're starting to, to have them understand that there's a, there's a pace of the game that you want. But at the big league level, I think it should just unfold. So, yeah, it's kind of more like the idea that once they... A lot of things have been born that way, Cal. When you start things in the minors and get people used to it, by the time they get to the big leagues, it doesn't have to be enforced as much. It's just kind of, it's just kind of born in them, right? Yeah, I, I like that concept. I like the educational concept of teaching situations and getting the game moving and appealing to kids. Minor leagues are like showing them, you know, that uh, playing the game is also professionally. There's a there's sort of a pace and there's an expectation, and then you don't have to enforce it when it gets to the big league. That's just it's their second nature, and they know that that that's how the, that's how the game is uh, is presented. Uh, your latest book came out last month, The Closer. Uh, you've written, I think, six of them with Kevin Coward from Disney Hyperion Books. Uh, what what do you like about presenting these kids books? <laughs> it's uh, Kevin Coward's a really uh, uh, is really good at bringing characters uh, to life uh, and bringing the uh, the dialogue between uh, the kids. Um, I like the concept of that book uh, was to, was to be able to deal with some social issues or some issues that uh, teams uh, deal with in a way that doesn't seem like it's critical. So you're just telling a story about uh, things that happen. Um, you know, the first, very first one was really important to me. Uh, was about a, a hothead. Mm-hmm. It was about um, uh, basically me losing your temper. And so many kids deal with uh, what do they do with the temper, and so many parents deal with how to how, how to deal with it. So you have that issue that comes out in the form of a team, and you uh, show them, you know, uh, from a coaching standpoint, from um, from a parent standpoint, and also from your own uh, individual learning you know, what that looks like and how you uh, deal with that. And so it, it was a way to deal with uh, the one of them was the uh, supersized slugger, mm-hmm. the kid that was a little overweight. Some of the stigmas that happen with that, even though he's very athletic, you know, what happens with that and even bullying issues. Yeah. So issues that are normal to kids, if you can read a story or you can look at it um, and relate to it that way and kind of understand that there are ways to get out of it, even as simple as uh, being able to share that with your parents. Yeah. You know, many kids uh, feel like they can't, um, you know, share that with their parents. And this was a way to say, here's a way that uh, that th- this this uh, ball player handled it. You know, maybe maybe there's something in here that can help you. I really liked uh, dealing with. 
with those issues in the context of a team. I love the titles. Uh, the closer is the latest one. You had Hothead, which you mentioned, Squeeze Play, Out at Home, Wild Pitch, Supersized Slugger. Uh, I've got one for you next one. Are you ready for this one? Okay, what's the next one? This Play is Under Review. This Play is yeah. Under Review. Like that one? <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the instant replay. Uh, I'm a big advocate of that. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell you what, um, I don't know if I want to say this or not, but I will. Okay. Um, I used to think that uh, you know the improvements of the uh, the electronics uh, in the game, you know whether the whether the, uh, the home plate umpire could ever be replaced with uh, technology, mm-hmm. and I'm starting to think that uh, yes. That, mm. he, that he could be replaced. Um, when I start to look at how games can switch, you know, you look at playoff games, one pitch that goes one and one, the count goes to one and two, it's a critical time yes. when the base is loaded. And so a missed call at the uh, wrong time, or even if you look at the game, sometimes you look, well, God, that strike zone is not as good for this team as it is for the other team. It makes you wonder a little bit uh, how that game was impacted. So um, if you had some sort of electronic strike zone, uh, other sports are starting to use that, you know, uh, really effectively. And so turning your back on the technology might not be the way to go. Um, but it feels like uh, it, it, it's moving in that direction, and uh, and uh, it's quite possible it could make it, uh, you know, you know, a better game, you know, to find out who's the best team. Brian Kenny is going to love you just for saying that, and I'm going to make sure I point it out to him. <laughs> Billy uh, has has a good time with uh, Brian Kinney uh, going back and forth on some of the things up at MLB Network. So uh, I, uh, I've gotten to know Brian Kinney a lot more through Billy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> than, than I did when I was hanging around him. I um, it's funny because you mentioned the counts. I've always thought it's it's a pretty simple concept as far as I'm concerned. But I always thought if you just went back to calling a rule book strike, letters to knees. It would change everything about the game that we want to. It would get better counts, which leads to more action pitches and improves the pace of play. The, the uniformity is one thing, but I think if you opened it up a little bit more, what you're talking about, every 2-1 count would become a 1-2 count and get to the action quicker. Well, um, I have a different feeling of that. Some, some people's theories, if you open up the strike zone, uh, you move the game quicker. Mm-hmm. I, I see the opposite. I think, hmm. once, especially at the big league level, if you widen out the strike zone and you you give a pitcher out there saying, "Oh, you called that a strike and it was off the plate," um, I don't have to throw the ball over the plate, and I'm going to see how far you go out. Hmm. And so, um, I think the the counter is probably more effective. If you have a tighter strike zone and the pitcher knows that he can't fall around, he's got to come at you. Then the hitter knows he's going to swing earlier in the count, and the game will move. But I'm an advocate if uh, the home plate is designed as that's that's how far the plate goes, the width of it. If you want, if you don't think the strike zone is big enough, then change the size of the plate. Um, and even the up and down pitch, I thought that uh, you know if you're calling the higher pitch or you go from the letters to the knees, um, um, you can you can hit that those pitches. Mm-hmm. They're hard to hit a really good fastball that's up around the letters. Yes, um, but. If you're calling a pitch off the plate outside, no hitter can get to that one. And if you try to get to that one, you're then you're you're cutting off yourself on the inside corner. So um, I like the idea of having a strike zone that's represented by the plate. And you know the up and down part doesn't bother me nearly as much as uh, expanding the strike zone in or out. Well, seeing as how you have a few thousand more at bats than I do, I will defer to you and your judgment on that one. Uh, <laughs> okay. Listen, thank you very much for the time, Cal. Uh, I hope we get a chance to do it again down the road. I'd love to. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun.
This was the first chance I've really had to chat with Cal Ripken Jr. He retired after the 2001 season. That was my first as a beat reporter. We've crossed paths only a couple times when he's been in the broadcast booth with TBS. I've worked with his brother Billy Ripken over at MLB Network and know him a little bit, but I really enjoyed this talk with Cal, and I feel like he did too. It was it was actually kind of cool to hear him talk about a couple of things like the 83 World Series or the, the night of 2131 that he's probably been asked about a million times, but he still gave me thoughtful and detailed answers. Uh, we're off now to a good start in season two, I think. So go back and check out my chat with Greg Nettles if you missed that one. Working on a special project that should be posting next month. I'll have more details on that coming up. Uh, and come on back next week for another hopefully entertaining edition of 30 with Murdy. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.